Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. In this episode, I'm really pleased to welcome Dan Strickland, former Algonquin Park naturalist, and Dr. Ryan Norris, an associate professor with the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph in Ontario. Both are experts on the ecology of the Canada Jay. However, before I introduce Dan and Dr. Norris, I wanted to start out by continuing my tradition of sharing some fun facts, this time about Canada Jays. Did you know that loggers in the 19th century used to refer to them as camp robbers because they were quite tame and liked to steal food? They're also known as Grey Jays and Whiskey Jacks. The Whiskey Jack nickname is apparently a derivative of an indigenous name for the bird and refers to its playful tendencies and roles as trickster and teacher. Mark Najiwan, an indigenous artist who lives on the Sajin Peninsula, features the bird in one of his most popular ink illustrations. I've posted a link to the drawing in the show notes. One great story that he shares comes from the northeastern Ontario's Abitibi region. In it, the first people marveled, though were frustrated at how Canada Jays were always finding and stealing their food. When they confronted him about how he always knew where their food was, Whiskey Jack said... Ah, it's because the earth is my plate, and one should know how to clean one's own plate. Mated birds remain together year-round and have quite long lifespans of five to six years if they can make it through their first two years. And they live in permanent territories of about 140 hectares. Welcome, Dan and Ryan. I'm so glad you're able to join me today in Algonquin Defining Moments. I thought perhaps maybe the best place to start would be if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you both got interested in Canada Jays. Dan, do you want to start? Yeah, I I was the chief park naturalist in Algonquin Park for 
many years, but um, early in my career, when I was just working in Algonquin as a summer job, I met Russ Rudder, who was the real father of Canada J studies in Algonquin Park. And uh, I happened to notice one of his color banded birds one day, and I'd never seen a color banded jay before, and I was very curious as to what it was all about. Um, and uh, I soon learned from Russ that he had taken upon himself to make certain Canada jays living around the old park museum individually identifiable. And um, that was the beginning of the, of the study. And uh, I helped him over the years. And uh, I was so inspired by his work, actually, that I arranged to do a master's. Um, of science at the University of Montreal in Quebec. But later I came and became a permanent employee of Algonquin Park and I helped Russ in the early years. And then after he died in 1976, I greatly expanded his study and um, added many more territories to those that I was monitoring and, and that Russ had been monitoring and uh, got more and more into it and more amazed by the crazy things that the inscrutable things that Canada Jays do. And Ryan, I understand you joined the study around 2009. Tell us a little bit of how you got interested in Canada Jays. I'm Ryan Norris. I'm integrated biology and uh, I started collaborating with him in, in 2009. And I'm trying to think back to that time. I was, I started at Guelph. I was relatively new. I started at Guelph in 2006. And, you know, I was, I was still looking for things to do, <laughs> um, different things to get started up, being a new faculty, um, expanding my research. And I read uh, an article by Dan and a former collaborator of his on the Canada J population and how it might be influenced by climate change, long-term changes and temperatures. And I thought, well, I'll just give them a call. I did uh, a few days later, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but I said, are you, you know, something to the effect of you looking for a collaborator? <laughs> I'm really interested. And he said, sure, it happened to be that his former collaborator, um, he, he had stopped working with. So, and um, he was from, the US. So it seemed to be a good time. I seemed to maybe hit him on a good time. And uh, he invited me up to just check out the Jays. And I'd never worked on Canada Jays before or anything really similar. Uh, I hadn't worked, I had worked on a variety of different species, but nothing like Jays. And so I went up uh, and uh, hung out with him probably for maybe just the first time, just a couple of days. But I, I, I do distinctly remember the first, where we went the first time and uh, what we did. We went onto a territory um, with two J's on it and we were looking for a nest and we, we can describe that, how we do that kind of process later. But we got there and kind of ended up in a place inside the territory, pretty deep inside the territory. They had pretty big territories and um, we found the nest there. And I, I, th I just said, oh, wow, that is like magic. And I, I think at that point I was hooked right there. <laughs> yeah, um, I well remember it. Uh, uh, one detail you left out is that uh, 
we found the nest by putting out little bits of cotton batten and twisting around a branch. And they find this, when they're building, they find this irresistible as nesting material. And that it's really the key way that we find nests. And for many, many years, the Canada Jay had the reputation of being an almost impossible nest to find. And the, the first description was in the 1890s, I think, and only one other nest had ever been described in the literature. So to see a bird uh, fly down and take this little offering of cotton and then fly away towards the nest and thereby reveal it, its location was indeed magic. <laughs> exactly the words that Ryan used at the time. And I thought, yep, this guy's got the right stuff. <laughs> He knows when he's looking at magic. <laughs> now, are we talking like way up in a in a tree somewhere, or I mean, where are where are these nests typically located? Well, they're usually located close to the trunk in a in a spruce or a or a fir, and um, they're yeah, right close to the trunk, and they're hidden from above, and they're just a big mass of of sticks, but they're not obvious like you could look for many many months days years and never see one unless the birds could be persuaded to show us where the nest is and you gotta remember that we're doing this in the deep snow right in in uh late february early march in algonquin so Right. Um, this is know. heavy snow too. This isn't the hot, the fluffy yeah. stuff of January. No, no. And and that, as as Dad said, it's not the typical way you find bird nests. And I had found a lot of bird nests even at that point. Usually, it's based on kind of trying to observe the bird, either getting nest material or um, and, and going to the nest, or maybe even a female coming off from incubation and you know you you follow her until she gets back on the nest and that those are the behave, kind of behavioral cues you use this is very unusual to, for me <laughs> uh to give a bird nest material and it come down to you and uh take it if but only they the jays tend to only take it if, if they're building a nest otherwise they're not interested so um and then you have to follow them now that when you stop the story there, it, it makes it sound really easy. But the the sometimes the challenge is is that because they have such big territories, you're following them for quite a distance. Remember that one nest we found where on mile 36, Dan, that we just uh, gave some cotton to Jane. It flew right up to the tree, like we were right beside the yeah, tree. It happened to be right underneath the nest, but yeah, there are lots so that, where you can find the nest by following them for hundreds of meters. Really. Yeah. Yeah, you basically you'll get a line where they're going and try to just stay on, just keep following until you see them coming back. And then you give them material again and do that two or three times. And if they're in the mood and keen on taking the material, you, you can find the nest. Right. So on a good day, you can find more than one nest. Um, but it's all because of this happy um, tendency to take the offered material so right and, and i guess be curious about it too right because that's, that's another characteristic isn't that of the bird itself yeah well they they do use insect cocoons um to um sort of fill the interstices of their twig platform and increasingly 
finer material as they get towards the, the inner cup, like they take feathers. Mm. And uh, if the cotton doesn't work towards the end of the nest building period, we'd often give them grouse feathers. And it, it all goes back to a chance observation I made in, uh, in Quebec when I was first getting underway. Um, I happened to see uh, Jay fly down and pick up some discarded Kleenex from the, from the highway oh. and, and fly off to the nest. So I so started using toilet paper at first and <laughs> eventually my wife said, you know, cotton might be a little <laughs> bit better. So one of the other things I'm really interested in, because I know nothing about it, is my recollection and the reading I've done was that, that Russ was the first one to sort of introduce this colored band mechanism so that you can identify an individual bird. But I'm really interested, how do you actually get the bands on the birds? Russ wasn't the inventor of putting color bands on birds. It, it, it had been done long before that. Uh, but he, he was the first person to put color bands on jays, I suppose. Definitely the first person in Algonquin. Th those help us identify individual jays because each jay has a unique color band combination. Now we put three different color bands and, and uh, aluminum uh, band that has a number on it that's registered with the government. So th those three combinations, given you have a a bunch of different colors, you can make unique combinations for each bird. And, and that's really vital for us to be able to track uh, how well a bird is doing over its lifetime, how many young it's had in a given year, and how long it lives for. So without color bands, uh, we would not be able to do what we do and get the type of data we get. To put them on, you capture the bird, and um, we usually capture them in, um, in a type of potter trap um, and we bait the trap. It's a walk-in trap with a trap door. So we put some, uh, put some bread or cheese in there and, and the jay goes in. Now, usually it's fairly easy that if you haven't caught a jay before, if it's never been caught, uh, it's, it's fairly easy to do. And then we take the, the bird out and, and put the bands on, um, you know, very carefully. It's only, uh, only a trained professional can do it. And, and, then, and then we let the bird go. We, we take some measurements. We take some body measurements. Um, we might even, depending on the type of study, take a blood sample um, or a feather sample too, to get some other types of information. We let the bird go and it's unharmed. Usually we give it a little snack before we let it go. It, it'll happily happily take a little piece of cheese or bread too, and off it goes. The whole thing takes about, you know, five or 10 minutes tops. Oh, okay. And then, and do you do that same sort of thing if there, when you, if you see a nest and it has babies in it? Yes, we do. Um, we usually band them, organize an expedition to get to the nest. Sometimes it involves having a professional tree climber if the nest is really high. Uh, otherwise, we go up on a ladder, take them down, um, and um, give the the young about halfway through their nestling period, when they're sort of on the 11 to 13 day age range, and we give them uh, their unique combination of colored bands and an aluminum band, and 
put them back in the nest. Wow. And, and that's how we do it. And that's, that's ideal because we know exactly where they came from and, and who the parents are. And if we ever see them again, which we hope we do, visitors now with digital cameras and they, they send us in uh, photographs of the bird's legs of the birds oh, wow. that they've seen. So we can sit at our computers like we are right now and get reports of, of birds out in the field. It's it's a far cry from the, wow. the original days, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And we also have lists of, of the birds that are out there, at least at the last census period. And they all have their own names based on, on the color bands. And um, there's a little explanation of the naming system. So people get onto the idea that if they see a bird that has red over standard on the left and yellow over green on the right, that that would be Rosal Yoger, red over standard left, Rosal, yellow over green right, Yoger, Rosal Yoger. So I love it. If you see the <laughs> if you see the birds bands, you know what its name is, and if I tell you what the bird's name is, you know what what its band should be. All right. Oh, I was just going to add to that. And just to be just to be clear, we do get quite a bit of information from visitors. Although by no means does that substitute, uh, right. you know, for for our own field work. Right. And a, a lot of the times, you know, that you'd expect. A lot of the times, we get information from people uh, about birds that we already know are there. You know. Um, because they're the most commonly seen birds. But, uh, but occasionally we get really valuable pieces of information um, from people about birds that we didn't know were certain places. And we have an example of that, that Dan and I went out uh, just a few weeks ago to confirm somebody's sighting uh, that they had on a territory <clears throat> we didn't know about, a, a place up oh. Opiongo Road. So Dan and I um, got that piece of information and we, we hiked up there and we confirmed that, yes, those two birds uh, are, are now look like they're occupying that territory, at least for over the winter and will likely yeah, and be a, there. So it was a pretty remarkable discovery because these birds had actually moved something like four kilometers from where they had been before, which we've never seen an intact pair move so far to another, wow. another territory. It was quite... Quite remarkable, and that was due to um, two park visitors who um, saw these birds and reported the combinations. Yeah, it was like a, a a couple getting up and moving from Nova Scotia and going all the way over to BC for reasons unknown. <laughs> oh. Well, maybe not quite that far, but <laughs> in wow. Gray J world it is. <laughs> Sorry, in Canada J world it is. Now, now, Ryan, I also read in a, in, Mac, in a lovely article that Dan sent me that there's this new way of using radio telemetry, but little backpacks. On, can you tell us more about that? And Because that seems to be a whole new, really interesting area of research. Uh, yeah, sure. And, and in fact, it's actually not that new either. Oh, really? <laughs> now yeah, I'm doing no. it. <laughs> um, it, it was, it, it's actually been around for quite a while, but l like, like any technology, you know, 
it it's uh, it, it gets smaller and more efficient by the year. <laughs> so um, we we're now putting the way it works is it's a it's a it's a radio it, it's a radio transmitter. It, it emits a signal. So as long as you have a receiver, um, you know you can get that signal and you can get uh, depending on how you treat that receiver, you can get a direction of the signal. So you effectively be able to know where the animal is. Um, transmitters now are so small, we're putting them on monarch butterflies. So yeah. how small is small? Like the end of my finger, little finger small or even smaller? Uh, smaller than that, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So putting having a, uh, having a transmitter, a suitable size for a Canada J is no problem. In fact, the transmitters we buy now last year, you know, or over a year. We have portable antennas and receivers that we take out and that allow us to get out of the car and hike and track down the Canada J wearing a transmitter. We can also go up in, in the plane and we have antennas on, on a fixed wing aircraft and we can, of course, get more Canada J's at once that way. And so we, we, will, we will do that from time to time as well. The, the Canada Jays wear them like backpacks, you're correct. They have two little harnesses, uh, but instead of course of a backpack we think of that goes around the arms, it goes around their legs and sits on kind of up on their back. And the antenna of the, tra the transmitter sits on the back and the antenna of the transmitter um, continues up above the back and down the tail. And it's, it's a little whip type of antenna, very flexible. So it doesn't, you know, the, the, the J can get caught and bang it around and it just kind of flexes around and it's fine. So they, they've worked really well for us. To, they've uncovered some things already that we didn't really previously know or been allowed us to track Js in periods that have been, would have been otherwise difficult to, to track them. Namely, any period outside of the fall and winter <laughs> becomes very difficult to track Js quite somewhat ironically, because that's when most birds are studied. But, but Canada Jays don't tend to come to people or come to people much less often in, in the spring and summer. And uh, we've, been, we've been tracking young that way. And we've actually, we've tracked adults that way now too. So. Right. So Dan, my reading of, of, of Russ's work was that he was one of the, or the first to realized a that they mated for life and b that they had these specific territories that they lived in and and i presume you know protected and some sense of of what their lifespan was where did you go from there in terms of your thinking about you know what you wanted to study and what you ended up studying and and what you kind of discovered well you're right russ uh, russ's work with the color Banded birds established that, yes, they are territorial. They're not just wandering nomadically through the forest like some other birds do, notably winter finches. Um, they just go where the food is. No, in the case of Canada jays, they stay all year round and for their entire lives as breeders, almost without exception, on the, on the same relatively small territory. and. That starts to raise questions because there's not a lot of obvious food around in the boreal forest in the wintertime. You know, a couple of obvious candidates were 
uh, seed crops from from trees, uh, which are known to be exploited by winter finches, for example. But the jays showed no sign of having any ability to get seeds out of cones or any response to the odd super abundant crop of, of tree seeds that, that we saw. In other words, their numbers are the same year in, year out. The other thing is that in spite of this apparent dearth of food, they had amazingly high survival rate. It's normal for 90% for of the jays that enter the winter on our territories, over 90% of them survive until the spring, in spite of no obvious food around. So, you know, the cat is among the pigeons. How do they do this? Some of the early observers of Canada jays realized that they stored food, but that information had largely been forgotten and um, not given the attention it deserved or the People didn't realize the implications of what that meant. Not only do they store food, but clearly they recover it, although surprisingly and a little bit frustratingly, it's been hard to get actual proof of that recovery. But there's recovery no Recovery meaning that they go and find it. Finding, finding the food that they ah, hide. That again. they hidden wherever they hid it, yeah. yeah. Canada jays are almost unique among jays. Lots of jays store food, but they all do it. Uh, by storing food like acorns in the ground. Canada jays never store food in the ground. It's always up in the trees, which makes a lot of sense if you're living in a boreal forest that has two or three feet of snow on the, on the ground. They also have anatomical uh, specialization in, in the sense that they have these super large salivary glands that secrete a very sticky saliva. And when a jay gets a little bit of food, whether it's some insects or berries or whatever, they sort of squish it back and forth in their, in their mouths and coat it with saliva and use that sticky saliva to fasten it in place under flakes of bark on the trunk of the spruce or under lichens or that sort of thing. So they are anatomically and behaviorally specialized for food storage and trees. Then the question, of course, is how do they recover it from these thousands of little individual pieces hidden throughout the forest? Now, and is this just just seeds that they collect or? Very few seeds, almost not seeds at all. It's all perishable foods like berries or insects or mushrooms or little pieces of meat from carcasses. Um, that's what they do. And the real question there is, sure, they'll store food in the winter, but the whole point of food storage is to transfer the food from when it's abundant, namely the summer, and make it available in the winter. And that's why they store food. So they, they store food in Algonquin Park. It doesn't begin until late summer or, or fall, but um, farther north, they apparently store food all summer long. And... Um, that's what gets them through the winter, and they use it to some extent to even feed their nestlings in their late winter nestling, which is another whole thing. Like, why nest at such a crazy time of year? Like, yeah. uh, and that's been known for a long time. But the implications that it's stored food, that the jays are specialized for storing food, they devote extraordinary energy to storing food in this 
in the summer and fall. And then they sit around in the wintertime and draw on those food supplies. And they do it through memory. They remember these locations and these thousands of little pieces of food. And that's how they do it. And that's how they have a 90% survival rate in the, in the wintertime. And that's how they can bring their young off um, successfully before the snow is melted from the forest, before the, the lakes have, um, the ice has gone out of the lakes and before 90% of the migratory passerines, which collectively eat the same sorts of things as Canada Jays do, haven't even returned. Uh, let alone begun nesting themselves by the time that the baby Canada Jays are leaving the nest. So it's it's amazing what they do. Yeah, that is amazing. Now, so you you mentioned previously that this pair that you found up on Opiongo Road, Brian, had moved. Why would if they have these territories, why would they move? And the parallel question is. Are all of the, the territories that Russ first um, uh, identified, do those still have pairs that are still nesting in those areas? Based on our many years of data, our, our view of what a, what a Canada Jay thinks of as a, a territory has, has evolved. It's, it's really interesting because as Dan said, uh, uh, the life of a Canada Jay largely revolves around caching and it takes time to cache food. If you need to cache food that will sustain you from November to uh, March or April, um, that, that's quite a lot of food you, you need to cache sometime before then, before the onset of snow or, or even before the onset of, of cold weather when there's not a lot of fresh food out there. So, so you've got to stock up your territory. And uh, your territory becomes your, you know, your your kitchen, your cupboard, your refrigerator, and it it means that you can't, as a Canada Jay, you can't just get up, and and move, <laughs> you know, because you can't you can't move all those caches, and you can't you you might not be able be able to make them enough in time to replace them all to recache food on your if you're going to move to a new you know in your new place. So uh, the story is that they don't move that much, but we we had just we've just analyzed uh, all the data from all of the years actually to look at when jays did move. First of all, they don't move very frequently, but when they do move, they they seem to move very close by, uh, maybe the next territory over, typically, and it might be because they lost their mate. So there's an opportunity next door to remate, and. It seems it seems that even if they move at the kind of a bad time, say in the fall, uh, when there's not enough time to to build up your food stores again, that that possibly they use their old spot to, you know, go and retrieve their food and sustain themselves that way, at least for the, you know, for the first winter that they've moved, which has got to be tough. In terms of pair, pairs will get up and move together. Um, and typically that's to upgrade the quality of their home. Now, if they do it at the right time, it's okay. If they do it where they have enough time, uh, do that's it at okay. the beginning of summer. 
yeah, if they do it at the beginning of summer when they have enough time to, to cache food, that's okay. And, and pears will do that from time to time, but of course there's a cost to that too. And it, it still doesn't happen that often. So, you know, they're by, by large homebodies and when they do uh, move, they, they get up and they, they take advantage of opportunities that arise usually close to home. I think it's time for a musical interlude. And today we have Dawn of the Lake. It's from Dan Gibson's Solitude's Breaking Through the Mist CD. Thank you. 
So we were talking about Jay families moving territories. Does the composition of the forest have any impact? I think you guys know that I used to have a cottage on Canoe Lake and the, comp the forest has really changed over the course of the last 50 years where there's, you know, most of the spruce have died and the forest is much more open than it used to be. Does that have any impact? Well, it probably, probably does. And um, we speculate that somehow the Jays perceive that Coniferous territories, sprucey territories, are are better to be on. It didn't always used to be that way. And Russ's, and this goes to your other question about whether Russ's territories are still occupied. Uh, by and large, they're not still occupied. They they've all gone vacant, and many of many of the territories, over over fifty percent or even two thirds of the territories were occupied in the 1970s are now empty. And uh, the ones that are still occupied tend to have more coniferous cover and specifically spruce, black or white spruce on them. And we think that's because, and we've shown this through experiments using little artificial food storage chambers that we put on different species of trees uh, and put in different kinds of perishable foods in them, that the chambers that were put on conifers, especially spruce, especially black spruce, tend to preserve their food better than the chambers put under the otherwise similar conditions on trees like sugar maple. And we think this is because of the volatile resins that, that the conifers have that actually retard bacterial growth or fungal growth. So yes, con coniferous territories are better for the Canada Jays way of life because it preserves these little packets of perishable food better than other places. But um, then the question is, why are those territories that were occupied in Russ's day, back in the 1960s and 70s, why aren't they still occupied? And we think it's because the climate is is warming. And yes, the antibacterial properties of spruce retard the decay of perishable food, but basically their strategy is to put their food in, a, in the fridge and the fridge is failing. So specifically the production of young birds to come up through the pipeline, the population pipeline to replace the inevitable losses of older birds is failing. And um, as the older birds die, and there's no indication that they die any more rapidly than they ever did, but there are indications that there are fewer young coming up through the pipeline to replace them. And this is probably because 
the food that is stored the summer before rots. And we have evidence from those experiments that uh, we did with the food storage chambers and also by consideration of the number of freeze-thaw events, which of course plays havoc with preservation of perishable food. But uh, by the time the young are in the nest, the parents are, are getting pretty low on stored food and therefore the young are not as healthy and as prosperous as they would otherwise be if the climate were, was still as cold as it used to be. So this is, this is how we think climate change is adversely affecting the fortunes of, of Canada Jays. Uh, not only in Algonquin Park, by the way, it's, we're getting more and more reports from around the range of Canada Jays that on the southern edge, they're, they're, they're disappearing or not doing nearly as well as they used to. Long answer to your very short and important question. Interesting. Am I right, Ryan, that last year there was significant decline in the number of Jays that you were able to track? Well, the, yes, they're, they didn't have a good year <laughs> um, reproductively last year. Not a lot of young were produced. Going back, there was there was quite a big decline in the 1990s, you know, going from a situation where almost all of the areas were occupied. All anytime you came across uh, a bog, a spruce bog, there was a gray jay, as Dan said. And and a lot of the smaller bogs are no longer occupied. It's it's the areas where there's larger um, continuous tracks of spruce. And um, when I first went out with Dan, we would drive along Highway 60 and he would kind of point out, oh, there used to be a pair there, there used to be a pair here, and so on. And so since then, and I'd say since about 2000, it's been kind of in this state of just very low numbers. Sometimes, you know, some years going down a little bit more. Um, and it's, it kind of took a, maybe a, the population took another hit a few years ago and went down a little bit lower. But that's all to say the big the big decline happened in the 1990s, and it's been low since then and getting lower to the point now where we're at 15. We're monitoring 15 territories, so they they seem to have they seem to be having a harder and harder time to produce young in those. Because you know, as a po population, you need those young to recruit into the population, so you have more breeders and more opportunities to replace older birds, and that's just not happening at the rate it used to. Hmm. So I also read Dan that even though they may raise three or four, three or four nestlings, and they nestling, raise them, that's the right word. And then when they leave the nest, they're called fledglings. Okay, so so we have these nestlings in the nest. And the parents are raising them, but then they start fighting each other or something, and then they and they're only one survives. Is that what happens? Well, not quite, but uh, it's true when they're about six weeks out of the nest. And this this is unique, by the way, to Canada jays and to their old world relative, the Siberian jays. It doesn't it's never been observed in other other birds, but the, the young who up till then had been getting along famously, 
they do start to fight amongst themselves and one dominant juvenile makes life so miserable for the other ones that they leave. They don't, they don't die, at least not right away. One bird, and it's usually a male, gets to stay with mom and dad and the other ones have to leave or judge it's better to leave. And they look for another pair, the necessarily unrelated pair, that has no dominant juvenile of their own. Their nest has failed for one reason or another, so that the two adult birds are on, on this new territory are, are unaccompanied by any young. And the ejectees from the, that were forced to leave by the dominant juvenile on the natal territory, they, they try to get adopted, as it were, by just one, one per, per pair. It's not as if two or three ejectees all moved in together. They all go off independently and look for a territory that will accept them. But they don't do very well. And by the fall, only about half of territories in, in uh, Algonquin Park have any young with them at all. And about two thirds of those cases, it is the dominant juvenile still with its own parents. And then about one third of the cases, it's somebody else's young that has been ejected from the natal territory, but has managed to win some sort of acceptance from, from these unrelated birds. And that's just the beginning because they don't, they, they don't do well as well as the dominant juveniles in the rest of their lives either. So. Um, it's a very, very peculiar thing, and it's been at the heart of, of a whole branch of our studies to figure out why they do this seemingly crazy thing. Because, of course, when you kick your brothers and sisters out and cause them to have a great higher mortality rate, you're acting against your own genes. Your own species, yeah. Well, and then the other issue, Ryan, that came up for me when I was reading about this was well, if it's the male that survives all the time, how, do, where's the, how does the male find a mate <laughs> in their new territory? And the one that's left over is also not allowed to go near the nest. The next year, when they have a, another family, the, that one's kept away. And why is that? Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a good question. Uh, to answer your first question about males and females, when the other young are kicked out by the dominant uh, bird, they do some do survive um so you know you get and you get situations where females do survive and and sometimes uh you know that female is is the dominant bird as well so uh, more often it's the male but but so you do get females in the population it, you would expect a, a quite a skewed sex ratio though in, in favor of more males than females you're right to answer your question about the older sibling and its younger siblings. So this is a situation where that older, that one-year-old is still on the territory, that dominant juvenile, and its parents nest again. And when its parents, uh, when this uh, uh, juvenile's parents start to nest again, they will start acting aggressive all of a sudden to that juvenile. Juvenile's probably very confused about this, although that's our that's our human interpretation of what's going on. <laughs> um, it, our our uh, Ernest the, Thompson Seton moment, as I call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The so 
it'll start acting quite aggressive to it around the nest. And then it, it basically, what the parrots do is shunt the juvenile away. It's typically still on the territory, just not there. And remember these territories are quite big. They're about 120, 130 hectares. So there's lots of room to go uh, for the juvenile. But what the reason why we think that both parents don't like the juvenile around when there's any nest activity is because it attracts, the increased activity likely attracts predators. And there's a couple other lines of evidence that support that notion that Canada jays in general are trying to nest successfully while having the lowest level of activity around their nest. And you remember that they're nesting in March in April, when it's quite cold out. Yet the female spends 95% or more of her time incubating the eggs. Now females, when female birds incubate eggs, they have to get off and feed themselves or have their partner come and feed them. And neither of those things happen frequently in jays, which is quite astounding, especially considering the conditions that they're nesting in. It, when it's cold, you expend more energy, right? So you'd think that you'd have to get off the nest more often compared to a bird that nests in the spring and summer. Uh, they don't. And males feed females maybe once, twice a day, and that's it. When females get off, of course, they're going to retrieve cash food somewhere on their territory and they come back with big, just full, full of cash food, as much as they, seems like as much as they can get. But that infrequent, uh, the, the, inf the, the frequency by which they leave the nest, the low frequency, we think is another kind of indication that they're, they're trying to just really reduce the nest act the activity around the nest. This is a time when there's just not a lot of activity in the forest. Like there's not a lot of birds out there. It's pretty easy to detect movement if you're a predator. J jays aren't particularly fast birds. You know, they're, they're pretty vulnerable. If there's a predator around, uh, they can be vulnerable. So uh, they, they're, they're really trying to preserve their, their young. Now, when they, those young fledge, what Dad had discovered earlier is that when those young fledge, that is when they're old enough to leave the nest, they're not great flyers, but mm -hmm. uh, they're old enough to leave the nest, jump out of the nest. They're still being fed by their parents for, for quite a while. It's kind of like a mobile nest, right? They, they stick together, those young. But the juvenile, that old juvenile that was previously beaten up and told to stay away can come back. Some of, and some of those juveniles even feed their siblings now that they're out of the nest. And that kind of makes sense because its younger siblings are much more mobile and they're, all, they're moving around themselves quite a bit. So a little, some extra movement probably doesn't, um, increase the threat too much. They're, you know, they, they've, they've got their own uh, threats to deal with and they're attracting predators, you know, just fine on their, on their own already. So. Especially if the predator is a, is a squirrel because a, a squirrel, nothing can stop a squirrel from eating a nestling. But if it's a fledgling, even if it can't fly very well, it's, it can still fly. And it can move from one tree to another and make it much harder for the, for the squirrel to, to get it. So that means it's, 
super important for the parents to keep the nest hidden as much as they can by visiting it very infrequently and preventing any superfluous visits by last year's teenager to go see the new babies while the nestlings are nestlings. But once they're out of the nest, the parents can afford to feed them more often, smaller loads more frequently, and allow the last year's young to come to the nest if it is so inclined, because mm. the danger posed by, at least by mammalian nest predators like squirrels, is much, much less because the, the, the current year's young are mobile in a way that nestlings are not at all. Right. Now, if if the nest dis does get discovered by a squirrel and gets destroyed, is that it for the season or do the parent, is it possible for the parents to lay more eggs? Well, if the, if the nest failure occurs while there are eggs in the nest, they, they very typically do re-nest again. Like we've even had it a couple of cases where they've nested three times or, or attempted three times. But if the nest fails in the nestling period, that usually means it's over for that year. Mm. That there will be no further attempt to nest in in that year, and there won't be any young produced on that territory that year. So Ryan, I'm really interested in what kind of research you're planning for this season. Well, good question. I think Dan and I have uh, a lot in the cooker. We have uh, three PhD students currently um, working uh, on Canada Jays in Algonquin. One, Matt First, is, is uh, finishing up and he's looking at dispersal and the causes and consequences of dispersal and some of the things we talked about about switching territories. I, we have another student, Karen Ong, who's uh, quite interested in climate um, drivers of, of cached food. How exactly do freeze-thaw events uh, influence cached food over the long term? How do they influence? How does it influence their quality and, and their quantity? And also, how does saliva? The, uh, Dan talked a little bit about uh, the salivary glands of jays and how they act as sticky, uh, a sticky substance to attach those small pieces of food to the tree. We're also interested in how it might act as a preservative over the long term. You think if you're going to have that big of a salivary gland, it probably should have some multiple functions. And one of the probably the most important ones, if you're an animal caching perishable food, is that anything that you can do to make a, a piece of perishable food last longer would be quite advantageous. So um, we have that. And, um, and, and we, have another, uh, we have another student, Kyle Parkinson, who's really interested in key nutrients that jays need for development and how they get those nutrients. And whether they get them from the cash food or whether they get them from maybe very hidden sources of fresh food in, in March and April that we don't exactly know about. He's going to be doing some investigative work on that. And then on top of that, I mean, you know, our overall goal is to keep studying this population. Dan and I have had a few conversations over the years about, hey, when are we going to stop? You know, uh, what number are we, what number are they going to get down to when? We just stop studying them. And I, I don't think either of us have the answer to that. I, I would just like to keep studying them and maybe until the last one uh, sounds a little bit <laughs> dire, but 
um, at some point, we expect the population to be extirpated from where we where we study it, um, because probably you know the the, the climate is going to continue to get warmer, and it it will probably continue to be un, more and more unsuitable for jays. How long that'll be, I have no idea. Whether it'll be five years, well, whether it'll be uh, thirty years long. Maybe it'll be 50 or 75 years long after both Dan and I are, are here around. What I always think of as really important for the long-term study is um, Dan was, it wasn't part of his job. Um, it, it was, he did it in his, basically he did it in his spare time. So, um, but we'll keep at it. And it's a valuable data set. Look, there's not very many data sets like this in the world where we have 55 years plus of a marked population of an animal. It's very rare, very, very rare. And the type of unique information you get out of that is limitless in a way. And these, these types of studies are very difficult to keep going. So, you know, I think we could both go on and on about that. But the, the fact is they have uh, been going and they keep going. So we're gonna hopefully see it to the end. Mm -hmm. and, and Dan, I understand you're heading west. Do you have another group you study out there? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, that's right. Um, since 2016, I've been um, studying another color banded population of Canada jays out on, on Vancouver Island. The birds out there are, are uh, a different race of of, of jays, they're recognizably different looking. They were even called a separate species at one time. And there's some, in some quarters, um, there's some push to have it, them reestablished as, or re-separated, re-split to be a, their own separate species. But my particular interest is that not only do they look different, but they have a, a distinctly different social behavior. They don't have this partial dispersal of the young where one one juvenile kicks its brothers and sisters out of the natal territory, the way we were just discussing. And not only do they not do that, but there can be two or even three nesting pairs in one group. And the group size can be right up to 12 birds. Like So it's a totally different social system uh, is added to the anatomical differences. And, um, yeah, it's a whole new ball game, and um, in a different population of ostensibly the the same species. So that's what I'll be chasing in the next few weeks and a couple of months. Now, is it snow? Where is it the same kind of snowy nesting conditions in Vancouver Island as it is here? Yes, it is. They do nest. They do nest later than the birds in Algonquin Park, or even later than the birds in farther north in Alaska, but. But it's still a very much in a snowy environment, much more snow, like three or four meters of snow on the ground at the beginning of the nesting season is not at all unusual in the subalpine zone of Vancouver Island. And um, it lasts well into June, the snow on the ground. So, oh, so it's perhaps not too mysterious that they nest later, but, um, but it's still in a snowy, snowy environment for sure. Wow, that's fabulous. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I, I really, really appreciate 
the opportunity to learn more about Canada Jays and, and spread the word about the work you're doing. But before we go, Ryan, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your lab and some of the other research that you're doing. My website is simply uh, norrislab.ca. Um, so we, we work on a variety of different things. Of course, Canada Jays are right at the top, uh, but we do work on a variety of other bird species. Uh, migratory birds and uh, uh, as well as butterflies. So we're really focused on trying to understand why populations are declining, also in many threatened and endangered species as well. So um, yeah, we have a great team and m many of whom are on the Canada J team as well. So I also wanted to remind everybody that Dan, whom you all met in episode 27, was the power behind Algonquin Park's interpretive programs in so many ways. He took over the writing of the Raven newsletter in 1974, wrote many of the park's trail guides and books, supervised and trained all kinds of young naturalists, and also planned both the visitor center and the updating of the Algonquin Logging Museum. Dan also played a leading role in establishing the Friends of Algonquin Park and has been recognized by both the Ontario Nature and the Federal Park Council. So here's a few more Canada J fun facts that Dan shared with me. By 2013, more than 1,500 Canada Jays have been banded in Algonquin Park, including more than 800 nestlings. Canada Jays are leisurely nest builders, and they usually take three to four weeks to complete the task. Researchers check the nests every three to five days to ensure that the Jays have not lost their eggs to a red squirrel or some other nest predator. As of 2014, only 19 of 43 known or strongly suspected territories are still occupied, a decline of 44%. And today that number has dropped to 15, a 65% decline. And in the summer of 2021, only seven nests in the study area fledged young Canada jays, the worst reproductive year in the history of the Algonquin Park study. An effort has been underway called the National Bird Project to make the Canada Jay Canada's national bird, with a book on the topic soon to be published. The link to a fun article on the topic I've posted in the show notes. If you'd like to listen to more of Breaking Through the Mist, you can find Dan Gibson's Solitudes on any internet music site, like Spotify or Apple Music. Also, don't forget to visit and support the Wildlife Research Station at www.algonquinwrs.ca. You can donate one time or become a sustaining moose, spotted salamander, wolf pack, painted turtle, jumping mouse, or antler fly member. Until next time.